is also a podcast. Another in-car intro. Just the way it's going to work. I interviewed Tess Ziggo, financial planner at Two Wealthy Partners. One of the really important things she told me that's sticking with me is when she first meets with her clients, she'll ask her clients, what is the most important thing in your life? And see if people are spending money on what is the most important thing in their life. And most of the time, that's not the case. I know this isn't health and wellness and nutrition, but I really believe that financial health will live up to you living a more healthy life. Uh, you, you know, it's so crazy. I mean, time goes by so fast. I feel like they were just born yesterday, but they're now eight and five. Um, you have two girls? <laughs> two two boys. boys. Okay. How are you? I, so I have four girls. Oh my goodness. So we're a little different. What is that like? I, it's nuts. It is just, just like, I think, but my friends have boys and they say the boys are uh -huh. wild. So I feel like two boys is the equivalent of four girls. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, too funny. Depends on the girls, though. I've seen some girls that are wilder than my kids. So. Yeah. So. Uh, and you're in Michigan, right? I live right? in Michigan, but right now awesome. it feels like Florida weather. Oh, great. What's the temperature in Florida? Uh, funny enough, it's raining. I think it's in the 70s today. Let me check real quick. I'm only. <laughs> it's probably going to snow next week in Michigan. Right uh, now yeah, it's 70. Is high of 81 today. Oh, wow. So we have the same temperature. Yeah, I'm at 78. Yeah, but that's very rare for so. Michigan to be similar mm -hmm. to Florida. Yeah. Uh, we're in Michigan. I love Michigan personally yeah. because we live in Chicago and we used to come to Michigan all the time. Uh, I live an hour north of Detroit and I live in Rochester okay. Hills, but my practice Got is it. in Bloomfield Hills, if you're familiar with any of those okay. cities. Okay. Uh, no, I always kind of stuck around, you know, right around the lake. So St. Joseph. Oh, yeah, beautiful. And, you know, yeah, all the popular spots. Good, good. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into Very it. Cool. Okay. Um, when did so you grew up in Bulgaria? Uh huh. And then you moved to Botswana, Africa. Yes, I I was eleven years old, and uh, my dad was um, surgeon, and um, you know we lived in Bulgaria. I don't know how familiar you are with communism, but basically everybody kind of makes the same wage, regardless of if you're a doctor or just, you know, a teacher or, or any other profession, which seems so crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but he just, you know, he wanted a better life for his family and for himself. And so he, um, he had met some medical students in Bulgaria who were from Africa and so he packed up his stuff and just, you know, went to Africa, got a job at a government hospital, and they paid for our tickets to, you know, to join him. So, so we did. We moved there. Um, I was 11, didn't speak English. <laughs> and that's, that's the official language in Botswana. Okay. Is Botswana so that, not communism then? No, definitely okay. not. They're, um, yeah, free economy similar to the US. So, you know, doctors make a decent living. Yeah. Yeah. So was your upbringing in communism one of your drives to eventually go into a financial type of career? You know, interesting enough, um, I, I, I wouldn't say that was one of the factors. But you know, I did, I grew up with, I would say, like, 
lower middle class, right? We, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. I mean, I was told no more times than yes. You know, when your kid is asking, can I, can I buy an ice cream? Can I have this toy? Can I have that? Usually it was no. Um, so I was very used to not having a lot of things. And I definitely, that did instill a drive in me to have more things. And, you know, I wanted to be financially successful and not worry about money just because I saw my parents going through that. And it just seemed so unfair, you know, how is it that two well-educated people, a doctor, right? And my mom was a teacher, can barely make ends meet. It just, it just seems so odd. Yeah. And <laughs> how many people do you see in America who are a doctor and a teacher? They're also barely making ends meet because how they spend. Well, and see, yes, that is such an unfortunate statistic, isn't it? But I think in our case, mm -hmm. in our society here, I think it's a choice, right? And so we have control over how we spend. You don't have control over the system, right? Because if you're living under communism and everybody is just making the bare minimum, you get what you get. Yeah. <laughs> Versus here, you know, if, if you've studied and, and you put in all the work to become a doctor, you're making a very good living, right? You're in the top 5%, I would say, for incomes nationwide. So it's up to you to then, you know, learn the financial basics and manage your money. And heck, if you don't know how to do it, just get help. Right. And that's where you come in. Exactly. Which which is awesome because, heck, there's no financial advisors in certain parts of the world. Right? Yeah. So the fact that we have the profession here is awesome because you can get the help if you want it. So your background, you're a CPA and then the yeah. business you work for filed bankruptcy. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah. Well, that, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, no way to sugarcoat it. So, okay. I came to the U S as an international student. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of immigrants here, so I'm sure a lot of people can relate. So I graduated with my finance degree. Um, it was 2006 and I got my first job. I was excited. <laughs> I mean, I was barely making 50000 a year, but at the time it seemed like a lot of money. I mean, because I went from a broke college student to, you know, making what I thought was good money. And, and so I was working for them for two years. I was doing a great job saving, you know, utilizing 401ks and Roth IRAs and all these things. I, I felt like things were going well. I thought I was going to retire there. That, that seems crazy now when I think about it. But, you know, at the time, that that's how I thought about it. <laughs> um, and then 2008 came around and the company filed for bankruptcy. Were there any red flags leading up to it where you thought this company might go under? <sighs> well, you know, the credit system was tightening and... Um, yeah, there were some warning warning signals. I think I was just so young, honestly, and so inexperienced at the time. It was my first job, right? I mean, I was I was a twenty year old when I graduated college. So um, we were we were making tailored suits, and quite frankly, back then, I mean, the demand for tailored suits was just kind of on the decline. So I, I think that was one of the first you know signals that something something was not going well long term and then you know once they once they tighten credit and our our bank was no longer willing to lend us money it's like well if you can't pay your bills right you file for bankruptcy that's what happens yeah 
I'm not an economist, so, but I feel like tailored suits are not recession proof. That's like that's like the first thing people give up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, even even now, look at it. Who's really wearing tailored suits? Just celebrities <laughs> and executives, I think. Yeah, I feel like overall our culture has moved to more casual business wear, not not so much of the traditional, you know, suit and tie. Yeah. I mean, look at the two of us. Yeah, well, I'm in my office on my day off with a t-shirt on, but I, I wear yeah. scrubs during the week. I'm not, maybe do you wear tailored suits when you meet clients? Definitely no. not. No. Yeah, that's that's not that's not the look I'm going for. Most of my clients don't wear tailored suits either, so yeah. So yeah, what okay. are some of these lessons that you drew from this bankruptcy that you now bring mm-hmm. to your clients who are dentists, executive doctors to achieve financial success? Sure. So, I mean, I, I think bottom line, and I tell people this, when I worked in corporations, I managed money. And the only difference to managing corporations money to an individual's money is just, you know, the zeros at the end. So it's just a larger scale, Okay. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, the basics are the same and they apply across the board. Uh, you've probably heard this, right? But it's, if, if you can't manage a thousand dollars, what makes you think you're going to be able to manage a million dollars? And I think that's the reality is, you know, more money is not always going to be the solution to your problems. What are some of the basics? So I never heard that phrase, but it makes total sense. Okay. If you can't hold yeah. on to a thousand, if someone gives you a million, like every lottery winner, they exactly. go bankrupt three years later anyway. Right. So what are some of the basics that dentists and doctors are missing? Totally. So, you know, and it's not entirely their fault, right? I think, I think we need to do a better job with financial literacy And some states are starting to implement financial literacy classes, you know, for middle high school students, which I think is great. Um, But, you know, we need to understand the basics of credit cards, for example. How do you use a credit card? How does the APR on a credit card work? What is is APR? Yeah, it's annual percentage rate that gets charged if you don't pay off your credit card in full every month, right? And so... People get into this. I mean, I, I've seen people that make 200000 a year get into six figures in credit card debt simply because they didn't understand that, you know, if you don't pay off your um, credit card in full every month, they're going to, um, you know, they're going to um, charge you with, with this crazy interest rate. Um, it's as high as 30% on some credit cards that I've seen. And so that balance can snowball very quickly, you know, and double in approximately two and a half years at that interest rate. So, you know, you charge 50000 on a credit card, now it becomes 100000 And unfortunately, I mean, I've seen it happen. Is this mainly dentists and doctors? This is it. Like, I have a business card, I charge 50000 for a scanner, and then I don't sure. pay it, and two years later, I owe 100000 mm-hmm. Well, uh, so it depends on your interest rate, right? I'm just, uh, I'm just using the 30% as an example. Sure. Uh, but yeah, it, it doesn't just happen to dentists and doctors. It, it really happens to, to everyone. And it's not always 50,000. It's smaller amounts. But, you know, if you're making 50,000, uh, it's always about the percentage, right? So 
even if you charge 10,000 to your credit card, right? That's a big percent when you look at your annual income and your ability to pay that off and pay it off quickly, right? So I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble is, you know, if you're charging it on your credit card, you have to have a plan to pay it off. And ideally, you should be able to pay that thing off, you know, at, at the end of the month. So you're not accruing interest. My thought is, and I'm not a financial guru, mm -hmm. if you can't yeah. pay your credit card at the end of each month, the interest is going to kill you financially. You'll end up losing money exactly. long term. That's exactly right. Now, I will say there is certain instances where, you know, there's those credit card offers, you get 0% for the first 12 months. So if you're smart about it, I've used those offers, you know, when we were doing home renovations, and we needed to buy furniture and things like that. But I paid it off, you know, by the end of that promotional period. Um, and where people, um, where people fall prey to credit cards is they don't, and then they end up you know, being assessed interest, interest expenses at, you know, those astronomical interest rates. I mean, if people are complaining so, that a 6% mortgage is outrageous, a 30% th right? credit card interest should scare yeah. the shit out of you. Totally. It totally should, but it doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, people open credit cards, they forget, they open too many credit cards, and then they you know, they don't put them all on automatic payments and they forget. So this one credit card is sitting out there just accruing interest rate and they totally forgot about it. And then it comes to bite you in the butt. Is, <laughs> it's unfortunate. Is credit card the biggest thing people have problems with or with your clients? What else are they struggling with? Sure. So I, I wish I wish it was the only problem, but no, it's just one of many things that can <laughs> come and haunt you <laughs> for a long time until you pay it off. Um, some other things include, especially for dentists and doctors, um, one mistake is not getting disability insurance. So you don't get it while you're in residency, for example, you don't lock in that discount and then you wait 10 years and then your health declines and now you're not even able to get underwritten and get a disability insurance policy in place. That's a big deal, right? And, you know, it, it's a big deal because your income is your greatest asset. You have to be able to protect that, right? And you don't know what's going to happen to your health in the future and if you're going to be able to get that policy in place. Yeah. So it's one of those things where I think, you know, it pays to be smart early on and just get that taken care of. I remember they asked me, how much do I weigh for my disability? I mean, none of your business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your height and weight. Yeah. Yep, all of so that. you just said the phrase, <laughs> Your income is your biggest asset. Yeah. I've heard that from Dave Ramsey, and I totally agree. There's, I think you're more likely to get rich based off your own income than based off mm -hmm. getting rich in an investment or getting rich yeah. in maybe crypto or Bitcoin. How sure. are you instructing your clients to invest their income? Totally. So everyone is different. Everyone has different risk tolerances. Some people want to be a landlord and they want to invest in real estate, right? Some people want to have their own dental practice, which, which is an investment and you're, you know, you have your own business, potentially real estate along with it. You're in charge of your income. So the sky's the limit. Um, so I would say it just depends on that person and, you know, what they're looking to achieve in their life 
and whether you know it's business ownership real estate ultimately bottom line you have to invest in appreciating assets right that's the bottom line um because if you leave your money in cash <laughs> and i know lots of dentists and doctors who do this by the way because it feels like the safe choice right it feels like, oh, well, if I just leave it in my savings account at the bank, the balance is growing. So I feel good about it. Like I'm, I'm feeling pretty rich, right? I have 500,000 sitting in cash. Uh, but what you don't realize is that inflation is real and it eats away at your money. Um, and especially, you know, over the last two years since COVID, we've had some double-digit inflation years. You're losing money on that cash, whether you see it or you don't you're able to buy less things with that money. So the only solution is investing in appreciating assets. I think, I hate to use the word insidious, but it's yeah. insidious because if you have 500,000 in your account, the number yeah. doesn't go down, but the buying no. power with the money goes down, but it's exactly. so abstract, it's hard to actually visualize that. Totally, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's exactly why people get caught in that um, you know situation where they are just you know building that cash and you know and I always talk to my clients about you know let's find a number that feels good that helps you sleep at night right as far as how much cash you need for emergencies in case you lose your job in case you know things go south um, but then you know making sure that we're balancing that with not having too much to where you're losing buying power. How much cash do you recommend to have in emergency reserves? Totally. Um, so the rule of thumb is three to six months worth of living expenses, right? That's what we were taught in the CFP um, curriculum for anyone who's a certified financial planner. Um, so it's usually between three to six months. And that number depends on whether you have two people living in the household and working, right? Because then we say, well, the risk is lower of both people losing their jobs. So you're okay, you know, closer to the three-month mark versus if it's just one person that you're counting on, you know, let's go closer to the six-month mark. Uh, but again, I have people who are super risk-averse and they're like, no, I need a year's worth of living expenses. Otherwise, I'm going to wake up with panic attacks and have anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> so in that case, you know, we we got closer to a year's worth of living expenses because, heck, if you're not sleeping at night, what's the point of money? Yeah, you're so true. Right? <laughs> I'm in that category. So my wife is more in the category. She needs like three days of reserves to feel confident. Oh, nice. I need like 35 <laughs> years of living expenses in my That's bank funny. to sleep at night. Yeah, are you finding yeah. that most of your dentist or doctor clients are risk adverse? Um, no, I, I would say just it, it really depends. And, and I hate to generalize because I do I do find that a lot of women um, are very risk averse. And I think it's because, you know, especially once we have kids, we're the nurturers and we're very focused on safety. Right. And making sure everyone is is safe and and taken care of, uh, but again, I mean, there's you know plenty of exceptions to the rule, right? For those of you not <laughs> watching, I am a boy, so I but I'm still <laughs> risk adverse. It's so funny. I have young kids, and you do too. But everything's a boy or a girl. Yeah, yeah I'm 35 and I'm still a boy. 
So other than not having a lot of money in the bank, worry about inflation, mm-hmm. what are other things you're instructing your clients to do to achieve financial independence? Totally. Um, so of course you have to live under your means. That's rule number one, because I don't care if you're making 500,000 a year or a million dollars a year, if you're spending every dollar that comes into your household, you are no different than anyone else who's making 50,000 a year living paycheck to paycheck, right? So bottom line, you have to be spending less than you're bringing in on an annual basis. And you have to have a plan for that money, meaning the difference between what you're bringing in and what you're spending. You have to allocate that money towards building wealth, towards becoming financially independent at some point. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of dentists or doctors, they want to work forever and they love what they do, which is great. But, you know, you might change your mind when you're 70. (laughs) So it's good to build in that financial flexibility for plan B, just in case, you know, by a certain age, you want to have the financial ability to say, you know what, I want to work part-time now, or I want to totally quit and change careers, or maybe, you know, you're physically unable to work past a certain point, right? We can only control our health to an extent. So we always have to be saving and investing towards all of those goals and all of those, you know, building in that financial flexibility. So how much of your gross income are you directing your clients to put away towards investments? Totally. And you know, it's funny, we all love rules of thumb, right? And, and all my clients always come back to me and they're like, am I doing good? Am I saving enough? Am I, are other people saving more? You know, am I on track based on my peers? Uh, I think especially dentists and doctors love to compare themselves to, to, you know, their peers which is totally human. But again, uh, it depends, right? Because some people start saving and investing in their 20s. Other people wait until their 40s. So now they have a lot of catching up to do. So typically, the younger you start, you can get away with saving a smaller percentage of your money, right? Because of compound interest. I mean, we've all seen the graphs, right? With you know, Sally started saving and investing at age 20 and Sarah waited until she was 30 and now she has to save twice as much. So that is, you know, that is the reality when it comes to investing in compound interest. Um, and it also depends on your goals, right? If, if you're willing to work until 70, you may not have to save and invest as much as someone who's like, I hate my career. I want to retire as quickly as possible and not have to work anymore that person's going to have to save and invest a heck of a lot more. yeah and like you yeah. said previously about health i'm 35 and it's so it would be mm-hmm. easy for me to say i got 35 more years but who knows how i feel in five years yeah exactly right so i, I think building in that flexibility is really nice because then you know you have options and you can change your mind yeah so okay savings account putting a percentage mm-hmm. away what are some things that dentists and doctors are doing that are shooting themselves in the foot? Uh, yeah. Um, too much cash. Too much cash. <laughs> some, some spend too much. Do you find, so I have a lot of patients that aren't dentists, dentists and doctors. And it seems like sure. everybody I know spends too much. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is that the most common thread with your clients? You know, that is, that is a common thread with our society, I would say. So it's definitely, definitely a problem I see in our American culture. And I think there's several factors contributing to that, including, you know, marketing is such a big machine and there is, is it billions or trillions that are spent on marketing, right? We're bombarded with marketing messages constantly. And so there's this constant subconscious desire to buy things, you know, to make yourself feel good or, oh, I need that. I need to buy this and I need to acquire that. So it's like a constant um, hamster wheel because <laughs> it's never enough. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I see people of all income levels fall prey to that. And no judgment, but I go to my friend's houses and their kids' rooms are just swimming in toys. I mean, it's almost floor to ceiling. And I think, oh, my goodness, this is thousands of dollars worth of toys that their kids don't even play with. I mean, it's just sitting here collecting yeah. dust. Half of them are broken because <laughs> the kids break them after yeah. you buy them. Exactly, because it's all cheap, you know, cheaply made plastic toys made in, I want to mention, yeah. where. <laughs> in, in Michigan. Right? No. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think I think that is one of the biggest problems, really, in our society that I see is just there's there's no end to this consumption. And it's never enough. And, you know, you always want that, that new thing, you know, the newest iPhone, the newest laptop. And so you just end up spending all of your money. I feel like it's getting worse. Um, I did not grow up with social media, but with social media now, mm -hmm. the materialism is obscene. I'm not against having things, yeah. but like you said, I feel like sure. for every dollar people make, they're spending $2. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's very unfortunate. And so I, I started following, you know, minimalism a few years okay. back. And I follow some of the, you know, influencers in that space. And I think it really helps to, you know, to remind you that you don't need to buy every, you know, everything that you walk past at the store and and it's really okay to be more mindful and be more intentional about the things that you buy. And it's amazing because I, I find that the less things I buy. Uh, the more free time I have, uh, free mental space. And guess what? I also happen to save a ton of money. So then I, you know, I can spend it on things that actually matter, like my kids' soccer practices and traveling with the family, you know, experiences. Ultimately, I think there's so much research that says spending on experiences brings us so much more joy and happiness long term than spending on that Peloton that's just going to sit in the corner and most people just don't use it. I know. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Fight Club? Uh, yes, they a say long the time phrase, ago. The things you own eventually own you. Isn't that kind of true? I, I'm the, I mean, you buy something and it actually ties up mental energy. Yeah. It ties up space totally. in your house. You think about it. There's like yeah. duties attached. You have to clean it or something. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I, I love that you mentioned that. And it's so funny. I, I follow this minimalist mom on uh, Facebook and she says that every object in your house is sending a message to you, whether you know it or not. And it's like, clean me, organize me. You know, I need to be dusted. <laughs> and so really it just takes up mental space. The less things you have, it's just, it's so much more clarity and, and, 
you know, less less to do and less to do. Do you know about. the name of that mom you follow on Facebook? Yeah, I think it's uh, the minimalist okay. mom. Because th- that's so yeah. true. If you've ever cleaned your desk and like th- mm-hmm. the mental relaxation you get after cleaning it, just from not having stuff scattered totally. on your desk. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So funny enough, I mean, I think, you know, I think trying to um, embrace minimalism can really help people to spend less money, save more and and have less stress. I imagine, although you're doing financial coaching, what you're really doing is like stress and life coaching, because if you're not under the gun to pay debts, you're going to live longer. You have so much less stress. Totally. Totally. Yeah, I think, you know, I got into this profession thinking that it was all about the numbers and financial planning and let's reduce your taxes, right? Let's read the IRS rules. I mean, I love that stuff. (laughs) It's, It's a lot of fun for me. But then I realized that ultimately what people need is exactly what you said. You know, they need coaching. They need accountability. They need a mirror pointed to their financial situation to say, hey, this is on the path that you're on. Is this what you want, right? Do you want this credit card debt to swallow you whole or do you want to pay it off? And, you know, let's figure out what got you into this mess so we can address the root cause. This is a perfect segue. So say I'm coming to you as a client. What's the first step you walk me through to onboard me onto your business? Yeah. So the first step is a 30 minute conversation. And it's really about, you know, why now? Why did you want to make space for this conversation? You know, and and that's when you start kind of unraveling, like peeling the onion layers, right? <laughs> uh, because a lot of people wait. Usually it's, you know, a, a trigger that they finally get to a point where they're like, enough, you know, I, I can't deal with this. It's too overwhelming or I'm stressed out. I'm 40 years old. I feel like I'm way behind on my savings. So usually there's, you know, that trigger that, drives them to come see what's me. the most common trigger um funny enough um it, it seems that a lot of people when they turn 40 <laughs> that tends to be a very common trigger i don't know why it's 40 okay. but but a lot of people literally it's before a few months before their birthday or a few months after their 40th birthday are like okay this is the age where i you know i want to get my stuff together um, i think it is <laughs> so when like when you're in your 20s and you see somebody who's 40 you're like, that person's sure. old. And then like, <laughs> you, you hit 40. Don't say I, that. We're not far from 40. I don't think that. anyone 40 is old. I don't think that anymore. Um, but then when you hit yeah. 40, you think like, oh my gosh, I used to think 40 is old. I don't have my stuff yeah. together anymore. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I guess we all think by 40, we should have all our, all our stuff figured out, right? Yeah, at 35, I feel like I know less now than I did when I was 25 years old. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the smarter the smarter you are, the more you realize how much oh you don't gosh, know. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah. So then you're a CPA by training. Well, so I am uh I graduated with a finance okay. degree and then I got my masters in accounting. Okay. And I got my CPA and I thought I was going to do taxes. So that was my life plan. <laughs> And my life plan did not go very well because I didn't end up doing taxes and using my CPA. Yeah. 
um, I ended up going back into treasury management, which, which is just, you know, managing the cash of corporations. So, you know, I worked for many different corporations, um, including BP, Aldi, the German grocery stores. And after that last gig, that's when I realized that I, you know, I wanted to transition to working with individuals one on one. And that's that's when I discovered this profession called financial planning. And I mean, I had always been doing my financial plan for myself in an Excel spreadsheet, you know, planning my own retirement and, you know, doing all these fancy (laughs) graphs and pie charts. And and then I realized I could do that for other people, which, you know, which is you're not doing any tax planning for them. You're well. So would you consider yourself a financial coach or tell me? The nitty nitty gritty of if somebody comes to work with you, what are they going to get? Sure, sure. So I'm a certified financial planner, okay, which a lot of people think of it as a financial advisor. That's I think that's the most prevalent term. So we do things from managing money, right, investment management, uh, making sure you have the proper insurance in place. So life insurance, disability insurance, um, any other insurances that make sense, making sure we're managing your cash flow, right? Because cash is king. So how much money is coming in your household? How much money is going out the door? And how are you spending your money? So typically I spend a lot of time with my clients on what does your cash flow look like? And are you spending on the things that you want to be spending on? So, for example, you know, if you tell me that what's most important is spending on travel and saving for the future, but yet the majority of your money is going towards Amazon shopping, right? (laughs) We address that and we talk about, well, here's some things that we can make changes. Um, We also talk about college planning. So any other things that you want to be saving for a lake house, opening a business and tax planning comes into that. So I do utilize my CPA and my tax knowledge. Um, So we do tax planning, you know, what type of retirement accounts make sense for your tax situation, Um, Roths, IRAs, do we do any conversions? What um, small business retirement account is best for you and your business? So all of those things. So how often are people saying to you, vacations are the most important thing for me? And then you look at their spending and it's on like, candy or something like that's not a vacation sure um yeah i mean that happens a lot yeah so i think i think you know the amazons of the world are so good at getting us to buy things right that it just you don't even think about it i mean you just go online and you buy that thing i mean it takes two seconds it's so convenient and it's you know at your door the next yeah. day i've always thought maybe you agree i think humans <laughs> are just not good at managing money like you have to under, you have to use a tremendous amount of effort to be good at it because if you don't if you're sorry if you're not like conscientious about it you'll lose all your money yeah it is you know to your point it's much easier to spend money than it is to save it right So I think that's why financial planning is so important because in essence, the bottom line for financial planning is we want to make sure that we're allocating your savings before you even have a chance to spend it. And that's, you know, a principle that I read from human psychology, because here's the reality. If we say you need to be saving 20% of your income right off the bat in order to be 
able to retire by 65 if you desire, right? We need to make sure that that 20% is going into whatever account makes sense and is getting invested before it goes into your checking account. And you're like, hmm, well, that laptop uh, looks really good. And I think I'm just going to buy that. <laughs> so does that, that removes temptation? So exactly. You have like no, yes. So have you read the book Profit First? Okay. Yes. So it sounds like that. Like yep. you should put your profit in like a different bank if you need to before you access anything else. Yeah. I mean, in, in essence, it's basically that it's, it's, they refer to it as pay yourself first. You've probably heard yeah. of it, right? But that's what you're doing. You're saying, you know what, in order to reach my goals, I need 20% saved and invested. So right off the top, I'm going to take that. And then the rest I can spend as I wish. Okay. So your sister's a dentist, right? Yeah. How is. willing is she to take your financial advice? Well, <laughs> funny that you ask me that. Uh, so, okay. Uh, a lot of my other dental clients are much better at taking my advice than my sure. sister sometimes. I think it's just because I'm the younger sister. Oh, you're younger? Oh, then for sure. She's not listening to anything yeah. you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. So oftentimes I have to nudge her, you know, a good 10 times before she'd be like, okay, I will do yeah. that. Are you managing yeah. her finances though? I, yes, I do help her. Maybe I need to charge her more and then she'll take it seriously. I, yeah, I think double the price yeah. at minimum. Yeah, double the price for her. <laughs> so your kids are 8 and 10, you said, or they're 9 and 11? They're 8 and, oh, sorry, five. Eight and 5. Are you exposing okay. the 8-year-old at all to any of these financial concepts or the 5-year-old? Totally. Yeah, so I'm exposing them to very elementary concepts at this point. Um, so things like, you know... I pay them for the chores that they do. Um, and then they have the option to save it or they're not taking me up on investing yet. <laughs> so I'll keep working on that. I think it's just an age thing. I think they're just at age young. five. You're really investing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, so I try to encourage them to save it, save it for college. We keep talking about college. And then, of course, they have, you know, I also want to give them motivation to do their chores. So I also do give them the option to spend it, which they're very happy to take me up on that yeah. option. So <laughs> so we frequent Target quite a bit for the Pokemon cards. Pokemon is still a thing? Oh, it's very much Oh, my a gosh. Thing. When I was your kid's age, yes. um, like, what's this guy's name? Pikachu, Charizard, all the Pokemon uh, yeah. were like, they were so popular back then. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, they are definitely the thing right now. Everyone's trading them at school and, and they're yeah. not cheap. Can you imagine <laughs> having the same product for 30 years and still being able to sell it to people? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that shows just how much humans spend. It's the same product 30 years ago and we're still spending it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. At inflated. Yeah. I, oh my gosh. <laughs> so your clients, what if they have, mm -hmm marital differences and how to spend money. How do you consult people on how to do, I guess, reconcile that? Totally. So, you know, it's interesting because I think, I think that is the norm is usually, usually I find that a, a spender marries a saver. I guess, you know, the differences attract, the opposites sure. attract. Yes, oftentimes, oftentimes, you know, uh, the spouses have a different mentality when it comes to money 
and spending versus saving. So we talk about that and we always try to find a middle ground, right? So it's very important for both spouses to feel heard and to be able to come to the table in an open and transparent manner. And, you know, everyone has different needs. So, for example, I have a, a couple up in Chicago and the, the wife loves spending on girls trips. That's her thing. And the husband loves spending on um, car racing and pimping out his car and making it faster and all of these things. So we basically came to the agreement that each one of them is going to have this fun account and they're going to fund it with the same dollar amount because it's an equal partnership. And they can spend that account, you know, to fulfill their needs. And so everyone's happy and the rest of the money gets allocated according to, you know, their joint goals, such as retiring and, you know, paying for, for their kids' college. These people have kids? Oh, yeah, they have okay. two kids. I, I hear like girls' yeah. trips and pimping your ride. I'm thinking like they're oh, like yeah, young yeah. 20 professionals. <laughs> no, you know, I mean... When you have kids, you can't just let all your hobbies and, and passions fall to the wayside. It's like you're still a human with your own yeah. needs. And I think it's important to incorporate that into your financial plan. So you're in that phase where your five-year-old is getting old enough where like you're leaving like the baby stage. I'm still in yeah. that baby stage where like we're just trying to do diapers right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't yeah, miss that. It's, it's stressful. Yeah. So what about your clients that want to pay for their kids' college? I always hear mm -hmm. that you should focus more on your retirement than your kids' college. Sure. Sure. And that's always the textbook answer. And I, you know, philosophically, I agree with that, right? Because uh, nobody's going to take care of you when you retire, unless you have an arrangement with your kids to where they're actually willing to take you into their own house one day, which I wouldn't even want for myself. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, that's a thing in some cultures yeah. and, and it's okay. I, I respect that. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, some people are willing to forego their retirement and work until the end in order to pay for my, for their kids college. And so as a financial planner, I've had to come to the realization that I am not their God. It's their money. And ultimately, you know, I can tell them the statistics and I can, you know, I can tell, I can help them think through some of the other scenarios like, well, what happens if you can't work, but you didn't save for your own retirement. But ultimately, you know, if, if college is more important to them than retirement, I just have to support them in what's most important to them. That was such a mature thing. And as a younger dentist, I'm sure your sister probably feels the same way too. Like you're not their God. Like you can only yeah. bring them to water, but like it's up to them to drink it or not. And then like you have to go on and live your own life. Right. Yeah. Cause it's their money, right? Their money, their choice. I mean, I can educate them and I can, you know, show them the different scenarios, but ultimately, ultimately it's up yeah. to them. So how do people, pay you for your services? Sure. Uh, so I do a lot of fee for okay. planning. So similar to fee for service in, you know, the dental sure. industry. So a lot of my clients just pay me for planning, right? And it depends on how complex their situation is. So, you know, do they have a household with two spouses working? Is there a business in the picture? Or is it like a super 
easy W-2 job, no other complex, you know, uh, scenarios on the side. Um, so, so that's how I do it. A lot of fee for planning. And then if somebody needs help with investment management, then it's just a, a percentage, you know, for the assets managed. But I would say it's much lower than what the industry typically charges. So my financial advisor charges 1% yeah. of investment. Is that what you're talking about? Okay. okay. Yes, that is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, so it just it depends on on the amount of money that's invested. Very low. Very but I, low. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. You get there. You get there. Um, what I what I found that so I've been in the industry for eight okay. years is that a lot of you know financial advisors or investment managers. There's so, so many different names. Okay, in our industry, uh, but you know a lot of them end up charging what I think is really high fees for the amount of work that okay. they do. So if you're charging 1% on $2 million, that's 20,000 a year. And, and I think a lot of times you, you really can't justify that. I wouldn't pay that as a okay. client. So, so that's why I've had to, you know, revisit the fee structure and, you know, change it to where I think it, it makes sense and it's fair to both yeah. parties. And I don't disagree with you. And my financial advisor yeah. is probably not listening to this, but and I don't yeah. want to offend him. He's a good friend. But there's like okay. people in life that like build big things and then people that like yeah. take a percentage off that. And I've always felt that way where let's say I have mm -hmm. $10 million and you're just managing it and you're getting 100000 yeah. a year. It seems like a lot to me. Yeah. It's it's yeah. too much. Let's be, let's be real. It's way too much. And, and so, you know, um, two years ago when I really came up with my brand and built my practice the way I wanted to build it, because prior to that I was in a partnership, so I couldn't really do what I okay. wanted to do. Um, I said, you know what, let's, you know, let's come up with a fee structure that, that feels fair because, you know, I came into this business not to just get rich, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, yes, I have bills to pay, so obviously I have to get compensated fairly, but I came into this really wanting to help people. So so it's more about being fair and, and equitable to both yeah. parties. Let's talk about your business. I'm going to say it wrong. It's True Wealth or True – say the name of the company. Sure. Yeah, it's True Wealth oh, I was Partners. Right. Okay, True Wealth Partners. So you're the sole owner of it. You're the – I am the sole founder and sole financial okay. planner. Yes. Now I do have back office support because I'm affiliated with LPL Financial. Okay. So a lot of my clients, they're like, oh my God, is there anybody else that's helping you? <laughs> and yes, I do have a lot of, you know, support folk in the background. So I have an insurance specialist that I can go to, you know, there's advanced planning people that I can tap, CFAs, CFPs, they have all the different credentials, you know that are respected in the industry, but I am the main person that my clients go to anytime they need an issue solved. Do you have a physical location or is it all remote? Um, that's a great question. So before COVID, I had an office in okay. Chicago. And that's, I was taught that you need a physical office and you need to shake hands with people because otherwise they will not buy whatever it is you're selling. Um, and then COVID came and I realized that they were all yeah, wrong. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. Not true at all. And, um, you know, with two young kids and a husband who works remote, um, it, it's been amazing to just have a virtual office. 
for the past um, two and a half, three Is years. Is that now, why you moved to Florida? Because you okay? Yeah that that made yeah that made my move to Florida possible, which you know it was such a lifelong dream for me. So the fact that I'm able to live where I want and work with the type of people that I want has been amazing. Who's your ideal? Oh, sorry, I, go ahead. oh, I was gonna say, and I think it makes me a better planner, frankly, because when you're actually happy in your own life, it's much easier to come, you know, to come to every meeting and put your best self forward. Oh yeah, and and be able to serve people better. So, who is your ideal client? Because I don't want people reaching out to you unless they're good for you. <laughs> um. So I would say the first criteria is someone who actually wants advice. So right? are people coming to you because... that don't want advice? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they do their own research and they're stuck on their own, you know, opinions of things. And listen, I mean, can you manage your own money? Yeah. Some people have the bandwidth and the you know, desire to, and they love researching personal finance topics. And so, you know, by all means, if you love financial planning and you want to do it by yourself, that's great. Um, but yes, wanting advice is, is kind of important because, you know, if you're coming to me, you need to be willing to, <laughs> to take my advice and, you know, implement some of the things that I recommend. I get after we go. I got to stop you for one second. I wish we would have started with that. That's like the best advice for anyone who does a service. Your number one criteria should be, if you're coming to me, you you, you should need to want my help. Yeah. Because how many people have come to a dentist or a doctor and then have not wanted their help? And it makes everyone uncomfortable. You know, I, I, I read the forums in, in the Facebook group, Dental Nachos, and it's like, oh, you know, patient came, didn't want x-rays. It's like, well, why are they in your office? Then what do yeah, they I, want? <laughs> they, they want the answer they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just so. So to answer yeah. your question, uh, that is very important. Um, another important thing that I look for is honestly personality okay. fit. Um, I, work, I work with nice people. Um, I worked in corporate America for nine years, and I hate to say it, but not everyone was nice. Honestly, <laughs> there were some, <laughs> there were some mean people, and I don't have energy for yeah. that. So yeah, we you know we we have to be able to drive, which is why I do the initial consult because you know usually within a thirty minute window we can tell if we like each other and. <laughs> um yeah that's important. are you finding the further you get in your career because i'm i'm 10 years out now mm-hmm. you have the ability to say no to working with people uh it's okay saying no is very difficult okay. for me <laughs> i will say i am working on it i'm getting better about being able to tell when someone is not a good fit I still have a hard time turning people away because I want to help everyone. So it's a work in progress. Well, we are the same person because I'm just now starting to tell patients no. Because you. you know how it is. You get one bad client, one bad patient, yeah. and it, it's like they are absorbing 90% of your attention and they're just like one person. Yeah. So you're probably totally. a people pleaser. 
Very Me much too. so. Me too. Yeah. So how do you turn them away? I am curious because maybe I could learn a thing. I just tell them like, you're a wonderful person. I wish you the very best. But if if we were together, we're both not going to get the result that we want. So you're better served <laughs> somewhere else. Please don't yeah. sue me. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> well, I need to incorporate that into my yeah. own Yeah, because well, my wife's an attorney and it's kind of the same mm -hmm. thing. Like one bad client, if, if the person keeps you up at night for negative reasons, they got to go because life's yes. too short. Yes, exactly. Life is too short. Yes. I think, yeah, I think if we can all get to that point where we can turn away people that are not right, uh, the better it is for everyone because they'll go and find a place that yeah. is right for them. And I'm acting all tough oh, on this boy. podcast, but I'm sure next week I'll accept 10 patients I don't like. <laughs> so be, yeah, before we close funny. this out, the audience sure. needs to know how they can find you, how they can contact you, mm -hmm. and how they can start working with you. Yeah. Um, so the easiest way to find me is to literally just Google my name, uh, Tess Eagle, and usually the first thing that pops up is my website, which is www.truewealthy.com. That's T-R-U, wealthy. Because, of course, the domain name with the E at the end was taken, right? A hundred years ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, exactly. Exactly. A hundred years ago. So I, I had to be creative. Um, and then there is a contact button on my website where you can simply schedule a Zoom call for a time that works. And, and we can meet um, for 30 minutes. Okay. Please reach out to Tess. She is amazing. Before we end, Tess, what is one takeaway you. you want the audience to know before we end? I think the biggest thing is everybody deserves to be wealthy. I think, you know, you deserve to be wealthy. Um, and, you know, you, everyone's worked so hard, especially dentists and doctors, to be realistic. I mean, just remembering all the sleepless nights my sister spent, she was living with me, going to dental school. You know, you put in so much work and effort to to be, you know, to be successful in your career. So you absolutely deserve to be wealthy and it's okay to get help. Perfect. I love it. Well, thank you again, Tess. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Bye.